Hi everyone, welcome back to Thought Spacing, the podcast, where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. Today, we speak to Professor Stefano Hani, who is an interdisciplinary scholar and whose work spans the intersections of the humanities, art, as well as business and management. Having thought at many institutes all over the world, Professor Stefano discusses at length his perceptions of the educational system in Singapore, explaining the relationship between our colonial history and infrastructure today. We recognise the different types of intelligence and challenges to measure them, emphasising the importance of expanding our mindset to value them. We discuss some strategies educators can adopt in fostering different types of intelligence, highlighting the need to ease on authority and that giving up authority does not equate to giving up respect. You have mentioned the many interests that you have with regards to like areas of academics and education. Was this broad interest a conscious decision on your part or something that developed very organically? I guess if I were to identify any specialty that I feel like I have, it would be pedagogy as opposed to any other subject matter, although I've been appointed in different subject matters. In turn, my love and development of pedagogy in my practice has a couple of sources. One source is the family. It's been a kind of family business. But then very specifically in university myself, we were introduced to a Brazilian, in fact, called Paulo Freire, who was a a very well-known educator of people who had reached adulthood without any formal education. Paulo Freire's position was there was a way to teach these people that centered on what their true needs were and centered on the innate intelligence that they had and didn't make them feel like they were people who were illiterate or enumerate. So I was very inspired by Paulo Freire, I still am. And I've tried to carry with me some of the messages that he tried to convey. And one of those is that we shouldn't be too quick to know or to label someone as a good learner or not a good learner, as intelligent or not intelligent, as capable or not capable. And we should back up and remember that there are all kinds of forms of wisdom, intelligence, and that we also should back up and realize that the way we've set up our education system, often we can only recognize one kind of learning, one kind of achievement. So Freire and others encourage us to think more widely and broadly, openly and creatively about learning and about education. Freire famously contrasted what he was doing to what he called the banking style of education. This idea that the teacher stands up there and deposits knowledge into the student as if the student were a bank. And then at the end of the semester, asks the student to withdraw that knowledge. So he contrasts what he's doing. You work with the student to decide what you want to learn, how you want to learn it. And obviously, I've always had to practice this within some constraints of the university system, of the needs of the students to do well in their courses. But as much as possible, I have tried to always ask myself, how can I work with the students in their education instead of simply delivering it to them? Along the same lines of you mentioning about learning as more of an innate capacity and then for people to identify themselves what they want to learn. What do you think is the purpose of an education? I tend to think that the purpose of an education is to give you the skills, the analysis, the practices that will allow you to transform your world for the better. I'm not here to identify what that transformation should be, but I'm here to help you build the capacity so that you can do it. 
I feel pretty strongly you don't want to do is give someone an education which leaves them feeling without the power to change the world, which leaves them feeling that the world can't change, and which leaves them feeling that they have to stay in whatever path they're on, good or bad. You mentioned about having people to need to choose what they want to do very early on. Do you think that's an appropriate system for an education I think it speaks to a larger question that we grapple with, and that is the relationship between our education and the colonial heritage of Singapore. And it's a relationship that's worth evaluating, not to point fingers, but instead to say, well, how could we transform our world? What could we do differently? So the first thing that I would want to say is that it's important when you look at colonialism in general to understand that colonization works based on a business plan. Colonization itself was really much more systematic about what it was going to set up and what it was going to do. And I call it a business plan because it's very important to say that places got colonized in order for the colonizer to make money. As a business plan, colonization has these different aspects. So it has a branding and a marketing aspect, which is there to justify why they're doing what they're doing. They have a logistics side where they set up all the logistics of what they're going to do. So basically, they're going to create Singapore as a place that makes something to go back to Britain. So they're very specifically going to reorganize the land and the people. And then the third part is management, where the people come in. And that's where the education comes in. So if you're going to set up a country like this, or you're setting it up because you want tin back in London, or you want rubber back in London, if you say that to people directly, they're like, well, the tin is ours. And if we do give it to you, we want a fair price, we want to sell it, etc. You have to somehow convince people to accept a system that really isn't fair for them. Eventually, most of that is done by education. So the British set up education systems designed to convince people of the superiority of the system, that this was the best system for them. So what are some of the aspects of an education that could convince people? Not everyone's convinced, of course, but enough people think I can't change things. These education systems produced enough people in Singapore who got convinced that they couldn't change things. So how does it do it? First of all, it creates a system in which it teaches you about the history of the world and the history of cultures that puts Europe on top. But secondly, it also needs to limit your critical and creative thought, because you're not there to be the critical creative people. That's for the British administrators and entrepreneurs. But at the same time, it does need you to do work. It does need you to perform tasks, to have specific skills. And yet at the same time, it, it needs to circumscribe that so that you don't get too many big ideas about what place you deserve or how you could run them for the benefit of your own people. So we get this very tight learning style in which the British teachers and then the, te the Singaporean teachers they train to do the same thing, deliver this style of banking education. Here's what you need to know. You don't need to know anything outside of that. We're not interested in your own position. We're interested in you being able to give us back exactly what we're telling you. Now, I'll say this is reinforced beyond the classroom. It's reinforced with the way the city is shaped and with what people see every day. To go out on the street and to see how the British have separated themselves from other people acting as superior, that they ride in the rickshaw and that it's a Chinese man who pulls the rickshaw. So as a kid, you're seeing, oh, well, this is the order of society. 
and right on the river, what is today that very bright Ministry of Communications. In the colonial period, it was the police station for single police officers. And it sits on one side and on the other side, we very quickly get into what is today in Singapore called Chinatown. Now, you might have asked yourself, why is a place that's called Chinatown, why does it have one of the most important Hindu temples and one of the most important mosques? And of course, the answer is that it wasn't Chinatown. It was the natives town. That's where the natives lived. All crowded, not sanitary. So I showed the students all this. And I say to him, look, this is a lesson every day if you live here, if you're growing up as a kid in the colonial period, on who has the power, on who has the, the right, and on who obviously doesn't have the abilities. So all this is built into our education. And then the final thing, of course, is the British, like the other colonial powers, practice a, a divide and rule strategy. So they would very specifically emphasize some of the differences of ethnicity and race and give certain privileges to some, certain privileges to others, create certain stereotypes about peoples according to their ethnicity and their religion, and then often make hierarchies. All of that is a pedagogy of colonialism, a pedagogy that has to be unlearned, and all of that is something that we have to be aware of when we go to our windows today in Singapore and look out. We still, of course, inherit a lot of assumptions from colonialism. One assumption is that some communities are better learning communities. Some communities naturally prefer some sets of trades. We still have this idea that the British instilled in us that there's only a certain amount to go around. So a way to avoid demands from the local people is to convince them that, well, that's all there is. And that brings us to the two aspects, modern aspects of Singaporean education, which I think inherit a lot of that colonialism. One aspect is the continued prominence of banking style of education. Now, there are, of course, attempts all over Singapore to undo this all the time. So, of course, you get into classes where people do emphasize critical thinking or creative thinking, but the overall frame of the education remains the same. The other aspect that we inherited, which I think is quite important to explore, is our notion of meritocracy. In general, the way meritocracy is presented to us, which is the way that the British would have presented to us, is that the rewards go to the most talented. Moreover, because there's only so much to go around, whether it's places in the medical school or internships at the banks, because there's only so much of that to go around, well, of course, the way we decide who gets those positions is through merit. And one of the things that we do like about Singapore, I certainly do, is that places like the government often are based on merit. So there are a lot of very appealing things about merit. They make people feel that society is run in a, in a way that has systems and rules. I'm not saying that we should completely throw out the idea of merit. However, there is a way of looking at merit and then you say, well, instead of merit being a way to decide who gets these resources, maybe merit sometimes gets used to tell people, hey, there are only so many resources. So in other words, merit is a way of imposing false scarcity. We have to be cautious around merit. We can admire the fact that we have it as an ethic, it keeps our government clean, keeps our institutions pretty clean. 
So some of that, you can't excuse it completely, but some of it is connected to a colonial legacy. So there are aspects of merit that are useful. However, merit can also be used to convince people that they can't have more of the wealth that society is generating. And it does this by saying the reason that you are struggling to make ends meet is that you don't have the talent. All of this about you don't have the intelligence, you didn't learn enough, it strikes me as suspect and makes me want to ask, well, is it really true that there are large numbers of people in, in Singapore who can't accomplish and who therefore are locked out of what's the growing wealth for some of the population? And I think the answer is it's not true. And it's an example where the meritocracy is being used as an excuse rather than as a value. You might meet someone and you might say, well, I can tell this person is really good at their job. And you could say, okay, well, this is a surgeon and a surgeon is a terrific surgeon and we, we value, we honor what that surgeon can do. But you could also meet another person who is someone who takes care of her mother at home and who demonstrates endless love for her mother, for her mother's friends. We don't really value that. But why? It's not putting down the surgeon to say that this other person is also amazing. But of course, we often get trained to say, well, I worked really hard, so I deserve what I have, and this other person didn't. But the work really hard is through exactly that banking style of education. That's how you got there. And you were good at that, but it's just one way to measure people's abilities. So now I'll come back to another aspect of this in the education system, which is the place at which I entered into a conflict with an aspect around an assumption about people's intelligence. And that assumption is called the bell curve. I'll back up a minute and say something about why that seemed like a problem. The bell curve has a very notorious history. When applied to humans, bell curve has tended to get tied up with intelligence. And it's the most notorious example uh, by a guy called Hernstein, the intelligence of turn was locked to rates. So there was a way in which race and the bell curve got tied up in a very racialized way. Certain peoples, supposedly according to their cultural or genetic backgrounds, were going to show more or less intelligence. And that's the dangerous thing, because once you get into that notion of natural intelligence, you're very close to, to racial science that the, colo the colonial powers used. Moreover, we can't measure wisdom. We can only put in sort of substitutes for it. So a bell curve becomes a matter of faith. There are a lot of price that any education system pays when they imagine that you can test for intelligence sufficiently so that you can really see the difference in people's ability. So as a teacher, as a, what my goal is, is to try to work with my students to get them to think differently about meritocracy and the bell curve, but also to work with all the people who have been told that their intelligence is less valuable, that their achievements are less valued, and therefore they can only have so much. I want to work with those people so that they can start to say that they have other forms of intelligence. So they can say, well, I want to transform my world. I don't want to be left in this situation where I say to myself, well, this is as good as it gets. So we still can work out and improve, I think, some of these issues that we inherited from colonial education. You mentioned quite a lot about different forms of wisdom and intelligence, and I do agree. But on practical terms, how do we then reconcile this with meritocracy, which I see as more of a bureaucratic way of trying to distribute resources? So how do we then put this into practical terms? That's a great question, and I don't pretend to have a, a full answer for that, because I think it's something we have to do together. 
But some of the things I would say is that we don't need to give up on an idea that you can be good at something or even that we can measure how good you are at something. That's important. And therefore, I think there are forms of measurement and evaluation that we want to keep alive. We want to examine them, make sure that they represent our true values. We don't have to abandon that in any way. What I do think we have to do is start from the other end and to think about all of the things that people value and care about. And one of the things we'll find is that this is a very wide range. But then what happens is that because only certain things are valued and recognized officially and institutionally, we narrow ourselves to those. And then if we don't get there, we measure ourselves against how far away we are from that. So one of the things I think we need to do is just renew our sense of what's important to us. And that's kind of what we were doing in the capstone course. So I would say to people, look, let's talk about philosophy as a whole number of things. We often think of philosophy of just ethics. But I said, look, there's a whole bunch of things that are included in philosophy. The question of happiness for instance. There's a whole range of them. And with all these questions, we as society, we have values about them. People who are trying to help with them, people who know about them, people who teach them, people who share them. A lot of that stuff doesn't end up in industry and in banking and it stays to the side. So part of it is about remembering that we have really a wide range of things that we meditate about, that we think about. And we need to try to figure out if we can match our feelings about these, the importance of these things to what we officially value and to what we measure. And we need to admit if we can't measure it, that doesn't mean it's not valuable. The second thing is, quite obviously, the time to introduce creativity or critical thinking is in the beginning of the education, not in a scramble when you get to university. That has to be there in the beginning. The tricky part about that is that that means teachers, from the teachers of young children right up to the teachers of professors, they have to give up a certain amount of authority in order to make room for the students' ideas, questioning, in order to make room for the students' creativity. And the trick for us as teachers at every level is to understand that giving up authority is not giving up respect. I work on it in myself all the time, of course, with the help of my friends, we try to do it together to get to a position where we understand that just because I told my student, oh, I don't know, what do you think? I didn't lose respect. Just because I said, well, I don't have the answer to that, or we should try to figure that out together, are moments where I am giving up authority, that I am always the expert, or that this curriculum, I'm the master of it and I control it. Yet, I don't believe that that means giving up respect. I believe this is a tricky thing psychologically, but it's also a tricky thing socially. It's also a tricky thing institutionally and professionally, because it can be easily mistaken for, for somebody who isn't doing the job. So there are vulnerabilities about it. It's something we should do together. And if you give up that authority, then you allow other people to begin to practice a little bit of authority themselves, a little bit of creativity and a little bit of, of the generation and production of knowledge itself. And what you can also discover is how much they have already of this knowledge, how much they can generate and how much they can share and how much they can enrich the very curriculum that before you were trying to master and control and hand out to them. You know, all those bad stereotypes of Singaporeans, we, none of them is true. I've, I met thousands of students, none of them fit the stereotype of all I care about is the four C's. I didn't meet anybody like that. Everybody said, no, I also have all this interest over here.
here and I have all this family experience that I want to tell you about. So let's remember that that's who we are and let's value that as much as possible and see how much of that we can bring in to the professions, the institutions, to business. Now there'll be resistance because people say, well, that's not a hard skill. We have to have these conversations gently but firmly. That, that's the first step. And then secondly, there's all kinds of talent. And the only way we're going to find them is if we stop thinking we know what they all look like. If we stop thinking, I know what makes a good doctor. I know what makes good public health. Singapore has excellent ideas about public health, but we know that there's still public health problems. And so ease up and find out what other people know about it. You, you won't lose your position, but what you will gain is all of everybody else's ability to think about these issues. As educators, this should always be our goal, the broadest possible education for the broadest number of people. And it doesn't mean a diminution of quality, but it does mean potentially more people in Singapore would feel like they're capable of transforming there. And that would be something really to be proud of. I also believe it's something that makes for a very stable society. It might sound like it's all about, oh, change. But actually, if you have people who feel this kind of empowerment, they're going to be happier and they're going to be willing to work together even more. Wow, I think that might be quite contradictory to what many people in Singapore might believe. You've spoken quite a lot about education and the way we learn in classrooms. For it to be more of a two-way street where we learn together, how does this imaginative and creative ways of learning come into play in a very hard science field, like for example in medicine? My sister's a medical doctor at OBGYN, and I've benefited from talking with her a lot about her practices. And of course, one of the things she says again and again is that there really isn't a hard line between health and society. These things are constantly entwined by the environment, by family practices, by what we term good health or bad health, or even really physiology itself, often can't be totally separated from its environment and from society. So in a medical education, one gets a, a chance to think about this relationship, though there are certain moments where medical science in particular need to focus in, they're never too far away from a whole big set of questions in society that go way beyond ethics. Because one thing to say, is this a person who we should keep on life support? But it's another thing entirely to say, well, what's the function of happiness in somebody's health? And what is happiness and how do we define it? And who knows how to talk to us about happiness? As with all professional fields, they can't ever wholly separate themselves from the society around them. And these are opportunities to let go of some authority in order to see what you might learn from others and in order to give others a chance to participate. The classic example, of course, for medicine in Singapore would be the successful efforts to give up authority to make room for traditional Chinese medicine. It's an example where, strictly speaking, from the point of view of a medical education, TCM shouldn't, we would rule it out. We don't have the evidence, we don't have the trials. But for various reasons, the medical profession let its authority just relax a little bit to say, well, okay, TCM, there's something here. It's a form of knowledge we're not totally sure about. Others have to teach us rather than we being the authority. This is an example where we can see different forms of knowledge and wisdom where there was a little effort. Hey, let's relax our authority, see what's here, not insist that we are the only ones who know the way. And then finally, I think thinking about professions, the one that's really struggling are the professors. They're under all kinds of pressure to produce scholarship that indicates that they're experts. And therefore, they are 
amongst the least likely to experiment with giving up some authority. And we need the professor to get a hold of itself with its obsession with authority and its fear of giving some of that up. So would a development for Singapore now to be then for Singaporeans to come together and actively discuss on the values that we agree upon even values maybe that you can't agree upon, but that you agree are valuable for somebody else. I think it's about gathering those and not letting those get lost because we're so focused on what we can measure. Of course, we're not going to get away from this totally because our main form of measurement is money. And money always brings you back to this idea that we can measure things. And money also is one of those things that we confront when we try to think differently about development because money measures development too. How big is GDP? I think you're right that what development really means for Singapore right now is something for Singaporeans to talk about and discuss. That itself would be development at this moment because physical development is there, the environmental development is there. What we have opportunity to do in Singapore is to watch a societal development Bringing back to medicine, when you were talking about the scarcity of jobs, it makes perfect sense in terms of entry into medical school because we value it so much as a society mm-hmm. with regards to authority. The healthcare professionals, we hold a lot of authority within society and it is really inbuilt into our profession. Even the way we converse is being dictated by professionalism forms and that's something that we need to begin to revisit and discuss. So thank you so much for this conversation. It was very enlightening. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.